Hello, welcome to episode 13 of How to Build a Sustainable Music Career and Collect All Revenue Streams. I'm your host, Emily White. I wanted to just give a quick intro before um, I share my interview with Symphonic GM Nick Gordon today uh, to cover a few things that's covered in the chapter this episode and actually the two previous episodes were based on. So to recap, we've been doing, uh, this is the third episode we've done on distribution. The first one was on the importance of direct-to-fan, where I interviewed Bandcamp founder Ethan Diamond. And again, to me, direct-to-fan, direct-to-consumer is really the foundation of building a sustainable music career because you get the fans' email address, you know who they are, and you can communicate with them forever. So that's why it's super important to push out selling music on your website as well as on Bandcamp when you uh, are first promoting a release. In the previous episode, we talked with Kulla about the variety of, quote, aggregators that are available to artists to distribute their music worldwide on Spotify, Tidal, Deezer, you name it, all the digital service providers or DSPs or streaming services to, to, to lay people. Now, today's episode, we're talking to Nick, as I mentioned, who's the GM of Symphonic Distribution. And again, you know, the distributors that we covered or the aggregators that we covered in the previous episode, DistroKid, CD, Baby, Tune Court, they are distributors. The industry just calls them aggregators. And all that really means is that anyone can use um, anyone can use CD, Baby, DistroKid, TuneCore, all that stuff, which I think is awesome, right? Because it's completely democratized music distribution. However, there's also distributors like Symphonic, which we're going to talk about today, as well as Red Eye, and there's there's plenty more um, that will, you know, In Grooves is another one, <laughs> The Orchard, I'm just laughing because I forgot and then I remembered, but there, there's a bunch of them. And they also distribute your music to, not also as in you work with more than one distributor, but similar to aggregators, they distribute your music to Spotify Deezer, Title, all those DSPs that we just talked about, except they are selective in, in who they work with. And most distributors like Symphonic um, uh, will pay you 90% of your royalties and they get 10%. That is completely negotiable. There can be advances involved. You can get an, an advanced pa- cash payment, but you might pay a higher distribution percentage. Um, you might want more marketing services depending on what's available. So, um, it runs the gamut, but distribute, you know, I've never seen a distributor where the artist or rights holder doesn't own the master recording. Um, their job is just to distribute your music, pitch it to playlists, um, maybe provide a little more release and, and marketing support depending on, you know, the package that you've decided on. But again, this isn't available to everyone. Um, they're selective and, and who they work with. Um, don't be offended if, you know, a company like this isn't working with you. I mean, I can't speak for Symphonic, but just as, as an example, I know they work with a lot of dance acts, right? So maybe if you're a rock act or uh, something else and you have a lot going on, they might not be the right fit for you. So if that's a goal and it's something you want to try experimenting with, you should. Um, you know, maybe we'll do a future episode about this. I've encouraged Kala, who was in the previous episode, you know, he was um, really, you know, he uses DistroKid for his catalog, but I've encouraged him to work with a company like Symphonic moving forward and he can compare like, okay, 
Did their playlist pitching and services help or am I better doing it on my own? So that's probably a really long-winded way to say that there's definitely been people like me um, that really just prefers to work with a, a CD baby, TuneCore. I've never worked with DistroKid before, but same concept. Find a human there, you know, and and have them handle the playlist pitching. Um, because I think when, you know, quote, digital distribution deals started, it was like, well, we could we can do this on our own. But there are some benefits to working with a, um, a digital distributor like Symphonic or The Orchard. And so that's what we're going to explore with Nick today. It doesn't mean that's the right answer for you. It doesn't mean it's the wrong answer for you. Again, it's not necessarily available to everyone, but I wanted to cover, you know, all distribution options you all might be running into. Um, And again, before we get into talking to Nick, I want to touch briefly on physical distribution. Um, I see a lot of artists still selling CDs. I mean, I've been saying this for years. It blows my mind. I haven't had a CD player in a long time. Um, but you might want to look into, not might, you, you should look into pressing up CDs. I mean, make sure that's a part of your pre-order so you kind of have an idea um, of how many to press. But we covered pre-orders in, in previous episodes for sure. But yeah, just um, as far as distribution of CDs go, that might come up once in a while. Like if you are working with a Symphonic or Red Eye, I don't know if I mentioned them, they definitely have a um, physical distribution arm. That's kind of what I'm getting at here. But I've had artists who have sold like thousands of CDs on their own and you know, uh, physical distributors weren't interested in them. So don't be offended if... Um, you know, there's a, if, if you're pressing CDs and, uh, you're not finding a physical distributor who's interested in you, that's not a big deal. And also they're good to have on hand for promo. Um, I just did a college radio campaign with someone and, um, it was more effective to have the CDs, you know, shipped out to the stations. And again, that's, that's generally pretty cost effective. Um, vinyl on the other hand, again, definitely be pressing that. Um, I list, uh, um, companies in the book, and they're pressing minimums. But now there's, um, I believe Digger's Factory is one uh, in Europe. There's definitely on-demand vinyl plants and they're popping up every day. I mean, you want to check quality control for sure. Um, but that's going to help you not order, you know, hundreds of vinyl that might be difficult and heavy uh, to ship and and sell through. So definitely um, press vinyl. And, um, you know, if you're, if you're, a national act and or you're starting to get to that level. And I would say if you've sold like a hundred vinyl on your own, that would probably be a pretty good benchmark. You could reach out to the coalition of independent music stores and they may be interested in buying some vinyl stock for you and then distributing that to stores. So that's that's a great relationship I've had for a long time and um, something that we've had a lot of success with, especially kind of before the on-demand pressing uh, vinyl days that exist now. Um, You know, you might have stock and then the Coalition of Independent Music Stores representative, Reg, shout out to Reg, um, will buy those and then distribute those to independent record stores. Um, I believe worldwide. I mean, they're based in the United States, but I believe they, they distribute worldwide. Also at this point of the book, of the podcast, of your journey, um, just a reminder to sign up for Sound Exchange. That's going to be your revenue stream for non-interactive internet radio. <laughs> and what that means is like Sirius and Pandora, where you can't pick the songs, um, you're picking the station. So make sure you're not missing out on that revenue stream. Again, we're going to um, do a revenue stream checklist in a future episode. So I want you 
you know, signing up as we go and and following this process. But, um, you know, don't worry, I'll be, you know, we'll be double checking all that stuff towards the end of the podcast. And I also cover in the book Indie and Major Labels. Um, That's also not available to everyone. But, you know, if you are going through that, um, going through it, like it's a, I don't know, like like it's a traumatic experience or something. I don't mean that. Um, but again, I, you know, the whole point of this book and podcast is like, here's everything you can do on your own, um, that's available to you. Uh, but again, if, if some of you are on indie labels, um, uh, or a major label, again, you probably know this stuff, but I'll just cover it for everyone. So, uh, independent labels are traditionally, um, 50, 50 deals. And that means 50% of the revenue, uh, goes to you, 50 per- 50% goes to the label, and that's after recoupment. So if they spent on, you know, manufacturing your vinyl, doing a PR campaign, radio, anything like that, um, you're going to have to recoup um, that money. And I, I don't mean to exaggerate, and I'm not even old enough where I have like the, the oldest school of stories, but man, I've seen like pencils <laughs> recouped. I didn't even know people like are using pencils in the music industry. So yeah, just just be aware that lunch that they buy you, you know, like I, this is a really random story, but I remember being at lunch one day actually with a distributor. I was with someone I was dating who was always very generous about um, paying for food and group situations like that. And so we were getting tacos with a bunch of people. And um, yeah, so the guy I was with offered to pay for the whole table it was shot down. I think I offered as well, like multiple people genuinely offered and the distributor's like, no, no, I got it. And that showed up on an artist statement and that artist that I was managing and that artist wasn't even at the freaking lunch. So someone else's tacos on your team um, might be paid for as well. So um, yeah, so Indy, um, again, just be mindful of when you're spending. I've I've talked about this. We've definitely had artists we've inherited that you know are a few hundred thousand dollars in debt um, and it doesn't mean they have to pay it back, but it just means they're not going to get royalties, a few hundred thousand dollars in debt with a label that they have to recoup. And it, it feels all too easy in early days of just throwing expenses on the, you know, quote unquote music industry credit card when you're with a label. And then suddenly it's like, oh, wow, we spent $300,000. Okay. Um, so just be mindful, you know, cause the whole point of this is, is making money. You're already quote, only going to get half of your recording revenue if you're with a independent label. And um, I'd like to think most independent labels are going to license your master either for a few years or even like 20 years. I definitely know of plenty famous independent labels that um, will own your master recording in perpetuity. That's their business model. They they stand by it. Um, and then major labels, uh, it's I'm completely generalizing, but it's going to be um, – 85% in the, and that's a good deal <laughs> for you, believe it or not, within this world. Uh, 85% um, is going to go to the label and like 15% to you, usually less if you're starting out. Um, it's more often than not going to be an all rights deal where the label owns and participates in your recording rights, your music publishing slash songwriting rights, your merchandising rights, your touring rights. And, uh, you know, the really scary thing is it's it's also rights that um, may not even exist yet. You know, I was reading about uh, what Chris Cornell's widow is going through um, as far as like AI deep fakes 
of her late husband's voice. And, you know, I, 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 I haven't seen Soundgarden's agreements, but it sounds like the band owns that and then, or the band has the rights to that. And then the band can stake ownership of, it's so creepy, um, Chris's AI deep fakes of his voice and then the label owns it. So his widow is fighting to make sure she has approval and control over any new music that's made with her husband's AI deep fake uh, voices. And um, so, yeah, I, I just got like gross chills in, in the worst way. And that's why these contracts are written, um, which sounds funny and I don't know, cavalier at the time, you know, that uh, that the label owns your recording rights uh, in any format now or future formats. Right. So that's like the AI deep fake thing. And then um, and uh, throughout the universe. Right. And we're going to Mars. We're going to all these places. So now that's actually starting to happen. And, um, you know, I'm recording this in real time. It's going to be distributed tomorrow. I mean, what is going on with with Britney Spears, if you're not paying attention, is um, so sad and so heartbreaking on um, every single level, a human level, a, a family level. But you know, when you have one of the biggest pop stars of all time um, having their rights taken away as far as their estate, their body, um, I mean, I've I've never seen anything like it. And it seems like something, I mean, it's happening to a woman, but it almost seems like something that could have happened, you know, to Elvis or something in the 1950s. So um, we've always wished Britney the best. I had a... <laughs> never said this publicly. I, it's not funny, but, um, when she was having her breakdown and whenever that was 2008, um, I said to my mentee at the time, Katrina Bleckley, how much I wanted to manage her. And I thought, I thought Brittany should have gone country at the time and connected with her Southern roots, but none of this is, none of this is funny. None of it is to make light of. It is dead serious. She was forced to work, forced, you know, isn't allowed to take days off. And, um, Look, I'm not saying if you sign with a major label, that's going to happen. Again, it's not funny at all, but I'm just highlighting these things. It's like I'm trying to teach you the importance of, you know, owning your recording rights, understanding what publishing is, knowing how to collect on it. But, you know, it's important to understand um, all, all of these things to the best of your ability, um, you know, for yourself, for your family, for your estate, for your, um, yeah, you know, like I said, everything that. Um, Chris Cornell's wife is going through, and even Britney Spears is going through as 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 tragic as that is from a human level. It it all um, it has a lot to do with uh, rights as and all the stuff that we're talking about. So I I didn't mean to get too off track, but um, there is a bright side. Um, I was interviewing Freddie Gibbs' manager uh, for a class I was teaching at NYU, and they've worked really hard over the past decade. Um, building up Freddie's career, and they're now able to license Freddie's releases to a major label. So that's the position you want to be in. Um, I'm on panels with major label folks all the time. Um, they nod their head yes uh, when I say this. If you know, if you want to get signed, you have to do all the stuff in this book because um, labels, industry people expect you to take it. I know it's overwhelming, but expect you to take advantage of the tools that are around you. So do that. That's what I've tried to lay out in this book, in this podcast for everyone. Um, I've often said to students and at speaking engagements, 
you know, if you want to get signed, you have to do everything in this book. If you don't care about getting signed, you obviously have to uh, do everything in this book. And guess what? It's actually not your decision if you get signed or not, which is why you have to do everything in this book slash podcast. I should have said that, but it's it's based on um, a book, as many of you all know. So that's what I have to say about all that. Um, I really, you know, it's interesting. The distribution chapter in the book isn't all that long, but we turned it into uh, three episodes. So hopefully that's clear. Um, it really is revolutionary that you can distribute your music worldwide and own your rights. And uh, today is the last installment of uh, distribution. So I will let Nick Gordon take it away. And I hope you enjoy the interview. And then tune in next week where we will um, dig into marketing your release. But today is where we wrap up uh, distribution for the most part. So again, enjoy my conversation with Symphonic GM Nick Gordon, and I'll talk to you next week. And again, if you have questions or need anything, hit me up um, on social. Twitter is probably best at EMWizzle. Uh, hope to hear from you soon and enjoy the interview. Thanks. Welcome to How to Build a Sustainable Music Career and Collect All Revenue Streams. I'm your host, author Emily White. Uh, today, we are digging in on chapter six, setting up your release and distribution plan. And I'm so thrilled to welcome Nick Gordon, who's the chief client officer and GM um, of Symphonic Distribution's New York office. Welcome, Nick. Hello, Emily. Thank you. Happy to be here. Awesome. Um, so you've been in distribution since like 1995. It's uh, true. That, that's amazing. And you're like... Uh, I think this is okay to say, like, you're a totally modern person. You know what I mean? You're not someone who's like, I've been, you know, you know, whatever, like in the warehouses distributing to Tower Records since like 1980 or whatever. It's like you get the modern world. So, you know, take us through that journey. And you're from Kansas originally, too. So take us, you know, through your journey from Kansas to Caroline to the Orchard. Tell us all about that. Yeah. Um, I'm originally from Minnesota, just to set the record straight for my for my gophers out there. Yeah, sorry to interrupt. Yep. I'm from Wisconsin originally. Oh, that's right. I think we talked about this one time. So yeah, I, I entered distribution in kind of a special time. And um, maybe so, some some people, my younger employees might disagree that I'm a modern person. But <laughs> I, I think that I am in context. I like to put distribution in context because it, it helps to understand how far we've come and, and also how not far we've come in a sense. But, uh, but yeah, I started out working for a small label that was... Um, acquired by a regional distributor based in Kansas City that was really just three guys and one of the guys' basements. And um, this was in, in 1997 that I actually started working for this regional distributor. And uh, this was the era of CDs and cassettes and uh, still a couple of years before people actually started talking about MP3s, at least where I was. And um, yeah, we were we were distributing CDs and cassettes to um, the regional regional versions of the of the big box change like like Best Buy and then Musicland and and um, I was in the, I was in the warehouse shipping CDs and sealing boxes, but I was also signing deals with with regional artists. Um, in that case, Kansas City had this very vibrant hip hop scene. And um, so I was doing deals with um, with artists like Tech Nine, who um, I use a lot as an example, as he's still very current. And um, in that era, yeah, we were um, there was still very much regional distribution, um, which means that the you know the big box stores were were doing purchasing of music on a regional level. So you could be 
you could have music that was just distributed in Kansas City and Missouri and Kansas and Oklahoma, for example, and not have national distribution. And um, so I did that for a while and learned a lot, especially in doing a deal with, with Tech9 at that era, who was signed to a major label, and they had, they had decided to sign this guy and then not put out any music from him. And so he ended up kind of sitting on a shelf. And so he started making his own independent releases and putting them out himself, and then also guest appearing on other artists from the city's releases. And he was just so massive in that region at the time that Tech9 could sell... 20 or 25,000 CDs on his own in Kansas City alone, which was a, which was a huge sum then and, and still is. And um, he was just very much a very independent guy and, and spun that into now a massive empire that he still runs completely independently from designing and manufacturing on merch. He basically does everything himself in Kansas City, and he is like an example of what you can do if you build your own brand and control the means of production and everything. And he is a very, very wealthy man who doesn't need to sell as many records as all of his competition to make way, way more money. Anyway, so I did that for a while and then um, did everything I could in Kansas as a as a person and moved to New York City in 2001 and uh, started working for um, for Caroline Distribution, who was then a uh, a part of EMI. And Caroline was also still kind of old school at that point. Um, it was very much a vinyl and CD distributor during the sort of the the last boom time of the compact disc. Um, but they were uh, importing a lot of vinyl from cool labels like Warp and Ninja Tune from overseas. And uh, so I was a, a buyer there, which is uh, then a kind of a older school manufacturing physical goods version of what is now kind of a label manager. Um, but my job was to order enough product to fulfill the demand for um, for music from uh, from labels like Arts and Crafts and Warp and Ninja Tune and Def Jux and Mute and um, and so other cool independent labels who were selling a lot of music at that time. And um, so I got to work with great labels and learned a lot about more about the physical goods side of the business as well as how. Um, independent distributors who are aligned with major labels operate and learning the politics and dynamics of that. And uh, it was a really special time um, in general, both in my career and for that company. It was, it was very rock and roll. It was very much the last kind of era of the music business that wasn't quite as tech-driven. And that was, you know, there was still, you know, liberal partying in the office and a very kind of punk rock um, ethos that was that was fun, um, and I met a lot of my closest friends during that era, my five years there, and um, and then we you know we came upon two thousand six, and uh, you know the digital boom had happened, and I felt like I was late still working for a physical only distributor in two thousand six, but at that juncture I I took a job at the Orchard um, as their first, uh, head of, uh, label, artist and label relations. And, um, and that's where sort of my entrance into the digital side of the business began. Um, and I, very quickly, I realized how early I was. Um, but, uh, you know, it was, it was a really exciting time. The Orchard was still, you know, two dozen people maybe, um, and was really just getting started. Um, but, had a lot of venture capital money, and um, I was the first guy who came from the old part of the music business, the old distribution business, 
And, um, and we were trying to build a modern distribution company, but with marketing executives and, and tech folks. And, uh, and so I kind of represented the old part of the business, but was still, you know, I was like 30 years old or something. And, um, so yeah, that was, that was a really exciting time. And, um, that's when technologists really did enter the music business. And I learned how valuable that could be. Um, and I met, um, a guy called Ishan Shah Jahan, who was the uh, left as the CTO of the Orchard after 11 years and is now with me at Symphonic. But he and I built the first modern uh, digital distribution uh, technology platform for, for independent artists and labels, which gave people the, the now you know, very standard ability to upload music into a dashboard and enter their metadata and look at their accounting and get a real transparent view of what's going on with their music and their royalties and be able to control everything from a single dashboard instead of, um, you know, everything before then was you, you couldn't see or do anything from your computer, um, which, you know, now sounds crazy, but at that time was um, very commonplace and was part of the, what was a very opaque the very opaque ending of the old part of distribution and the music business and began the now very transparent um, and streamlined and easy to operate or easy to engage with part of, of distribution now to a large degree. That's incredible. Uh, yeah. Um, were you like always super interested in distribution or passionate about it or was it just like, I mean, I, I was a nineties kid too. So it's like, Oh wait, this is a thing. And it's like, you know, you went to university of Kansas, you know, you find something in Kansas city, like, was that your in and you learned a ton about it? Like, I don't know. Does that question make sense? Yeah, totally. Um, you know, I, I, I always was somebody who I would get a, I would get a record when I was growing up and, you know, I'd look at the back of the album and I would see who the record label was. And to me, very much the DIY ethos of, of the 1980s and 90s and how record labels were distributed and who the distributor was for certain labels and all of that stuff I was very interested in in a really wonderfully nerdy way. Just I, I love how music is organized in that sense. And um, so... I just thought distributors were cool, and I didn't have that large of a vision. One thing I did learn early on, though, is that working for a distributor allows you to uh, have a lot of different artists and records in your life, and I'm someone who likes a lot of variety in my work, and distribution is the ultimate variety in that you're you're not like a manager or a record label working the same record for two years. You're, you're, you're working... You're working it for you know a few months, and you have lots of other things you're working on. So so I like that, and and I learned through a series of of you know jobs. I I never intended to stay in distribution, but um, I learned you know I have learned I guess historically that distributors have always been in the middle of the the major changes of the music business and have continued to have a role, and I think always will. And so ultimately, I realized that. Um, it's a good job security kind of position to be in the music business. It's not as um, you, you can't get uh, thrust from it based on, you know, rapid, rapidly evolving trends as much as you can in the other parts of the business. Amazing. Um, you talked about learning some of the politics um, between, you know, majors and indies in the distribution system. Like, do you, you know, can you share any of that? And is that helpful now? Do those politics still exist in the streaming world? Yeah, I think all the politics still exist. Um, 
you know, the music business is about um, is about leverage and influence, and sometimes ignoring those things. Um, but yeah, I think all that stuff still exists. You know, I think the where the lever that leverage has changed to to a certain degree. Um, the one thing that has not changed is that retail still has all of the power to a large degree. You still see, you know, Spotify um, wielding their power the same way that Best Buy did in the 90s and the 2000s. And, you know, ultimately they are in control of the consumer and are the front door for all the money. And ultimately everyone else needs that influence and those consumers and that money um, in order to do what they do. And it trickles down in that way. You know, I think the politics between the artists and the managers and the labels and the distributors have changed um, over time. Um, but, uh, you know, I think the old power still exists in the music business to a large degree. And um, it's everyone's job to learn about how that stuff works and figure out how to uh, identify what leverage you have and what you want to get and then build a plan in order to um, to, to, you know, maneuver the system. Love it. Are you a drummer? I am a drummer. <laughs> Do you want to tell us about that? It seemed like there's uh, some pretty cool drumming things in your background as well. Yeah. So I've been a drummer my whole life and, um, uh, I, I had a very influential, uh, music director that I met when I was in, when, when I was 13 and he was in my life still is in my life, but was a big part of my, uh, my life until I graduated high school. And, um, you know, d- drumming is a, a core part of my identity and, um, and has remained so both as a, as a art form and a hobby, as well as, I don't know, just a, a way that I see the world. And, um, you know, it's, it's carried over into my entire life really. But, um, early on, I, um, I, I, I had a band director who helped me identify that you could have a life as a musician and also work in the music business and help me I- identify some of my skills and 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 help to push that forward into my the business side of my career but throughout that I've played drums and bands and um, and you know, I worked for, uh, I took a brief left turn out of the distribution space and worked in the percussion musical instrument side of the business at Dario as they're uh, running their percussion division. And um, I I got to work with some of the world's greatest drummers as well as working for a direct-to-consumer brand. So I was interacting with, you know, the 11 to 17-year-old version of myself. And I realized in that job something that I guess I always always knew that, that drummers are just a specific type of human being. And um, whether whether it's uh, the biggest drummers of the world or kids just finding their way through the early stages of being a musician, drummers are just a type of person, and they're honestly some of my favorite human beings. I agree. I love that. Um, awesome. So in this chapter, and uh, or I haven't decided if we're doing an episode or episodes, but you know, chapter six is setting up your release and distribution plan, and we've been talking about Bandcamp. You know, we've been talking about the quote unquote aggregator options, but mm-hmm. then kind of the, you know, option from there is, is distribution companies, um, like yourself at, you know, like S- Symphonic. So tell us all about Symphonic. Yeah. So Symphonic, uh, has been around since 2006 
and is a 100% independent music distributor and marketing company founded by a guy called Jorge Brea out of Tampa, Florida. Um, and uh, he started the company when he was a guy in his early 20s, a music producer who was living with his parents at the time and uh, had a deal with The Orchard, ironically, and um, just started DIYing his own little distribution company, um, liberally borrowing the, the best ideas that we had come up with at The Orchard and was developing them into Symphonics model in, in a way that he could afford to do at the time. And um, he built just a great little uh, independent distribution company and built it the way small businesses should build, you know, one brick at a time, um, one adding one employee more each year as he developed a little bit more of a revenue portfolio and, you know, built his business on great customer service and meeting all of his labels and taking good care of them. And, um, and one of the things that he did um, was Jorge is a Dominican and came to this country as a, as a young kid. And uh, um, his, his family, he and his brother, as well as the, some of their early employees were um, deeply ingrained in the, um, the music scene coming out of Puerto Rico and the Dominican Republic. Um, from which came uh, now the uh, the biggest streaming uh, artist in the world, Bad Bunny, um, and so some of the biggest uh, reggaeton artists of the uh, of the late two thousands um, developed in symphonic, and um, that in addition to um, signing a lot of music out of the electronic music scene, symphonic kind of blew up in. Um, I guess like the you know by twenty fourteen twenty fifteen was starting to do very very well, and. Uh, and is now a 50-year, 60-employee company based in um, uh, still a, a headquarters in Tampa. We have almost 20 employees in Bogota, Colombia, uh, New York team, uh, Nashville, Tennessee team, and employees throughout the rest of the United States and splattered across the rest of the world. Um, and uh, so, you know, I came aboard um, – in early 2018 and um, hired uh, some of the folks that we have now and helped the company evolve a little bit towards, um, you know, trying to find the right place for us in a very competitive space in music distribution. Um, and so I think we do things, some things quite differently and other things um, just as well, but um, maybe in more of a boutique manner than some of the larger other distributors, including The Orchard and Caroline, places that still exist. And and um, and so Symphonic has in-house marketing um, where we do uh, everything from uh, marketing plan development, uh, digital advertising, graphic design, strategy, social media marketing, um, and playlist pitching, of course. And then we do digital distribution to every major DSP throughout the world um, as a direct distributor. And then also do physical distribution in North America. And uh, I think in general, one of the things that sets us apart is um, we are quite boutique in the sense that we sign a very select amount of clients that we feel we're a good match for. And we're not trying to sign every single developing artist like, you know, your self-service distributors do. Um, and we are not backed by a major label um, like many of our larger competitors, which means that we we have a, a lot more flexibility in how we can do deals. We don't have as large of a, a cost basis so we can operate um, and do deals that are a little bit more artist friendly because we're not, you know, sitting with uh, four story offices in the middle of Manhattan. And um, so we're nimble and um, we're very um, focused on music and creating a culture that is um, friendly for artists, friendly for employees, and does business ethically. 
And uh, so it's a it's a really fun fun company with great executives and a great team um, with you know a lot of distribution firepower, but without a lot of the corporate bullshit that um, is involved in in dealing with some of the major label and distributors. Definitely. And um, I think I'm okay to say you have different distribution rates based on what services you're doing, which I will add, I think is very cool. Um, you obviously don't have to get specific, and I can cut this out if you don't want me talking about it, but um, do you want to speak on that at all? Because I, I, I really liked that, like, oh, we can do this, or you guys can do that, and that was really helpful. Yeah, I mean, in general, um, because of the business being such where there's artists doing deals directly with us that are starting out or that are starting to do well. There's artists coming out of major labels. There's labels with just back catalog that aren't doing new releases. There's managers who are operating record labels. There's independent record labels operating like management companies. There's every sort of model out there. Um, and so what we've tried to do, especially over the last few years, is create a, a nimble pricing structure where um, you can use part of Symphonic, but not all of it, and you only pay for what you use. And so we just try to do deals that are um, form-fitting to what people actually need. It sounds like a, it's a very novel concept, but um, it's not something that some of the other distributors do where they try to make you buy. You, you have to pay for everything that they offer, whether or not you're using it or not. And um, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense to most uh, independent business owners. Um so yeah, we've just tried to create a structure where based on what you actually need from us, we can price our services differently, um, where we're still making money and you're you're getting exactly what you need and not paying for things that you're not. That's so cool. And to be clear, paying for, um, you guys are commission-based, so it's not like an artist is hiring, you know, paying you cash to distribute or something. Correct. We're commission-based for distribution and playlist pitching. And then we have a suite of in-house marketing services um, that are the models kind of like a publicist where if you need those things like uh, marketing plan development or uh, graphic design or, or some of those things, you can you can just hire us to do those for um, either a one-time fee or for a monthly fee. Um, but those things are all optional. Sure. Um, so what are you guys looking for in artists? Well, in artists, we're looking for uh, folks with a, a vision for their music and their career and their brand, I think, above all else. Um, you don't necessarily have to have a team around you, but we we are looking for artists who operate like a business, um, and in, meaning that they understand that their music is part of what um, puts them out into the world, but that um, they understand their own brand, they understand how to develop go-to-market strategies for their music, and uh, basically people who understand that, uh, you know, you need to develop consumers, you need to develop your music, which becomes a, you know, a product at some point when it goes out into the world and understanding how to to bring your your music to the people who are waiting for it and for the people who would want it but don't know they're waiting for it is a key part to creating the demand that we basically fulfill as the distributor. Um and then otherwise, we're looking for um, – obviously, great music is where it starts. Um, but, um, you know, overall, just good partners, I say, is what we're looking for. You know, we, we do deals with artists that have absolutely no track records sometimes if we really believe in their music and we believe in them as people and we think that they're going to um, exist as, as longstanding partners with us over a long period of time. Um, and I think that we, you know, as, as independent as an independent company 
who you know our number one goal is longevity. We are looking for partnerships that are that have the potential to have longevity as well. So we're not very transactional in the sense where we're looking to you know we're looking to get involved and to blow somebody up and to you know see them sign off to a major. We're in general looking for people who uh, do what they do well and know what they do and are going to be around for a long time so that we can develop a great working relationship that is repeatable. You know, it's not just one release, it's multiple releases over years where that's when the magic really happens and and teamwork um, works out great when you get to know each other and, and can work on things together and, and sort out all the, you know, the normal uh, challenges and problems and opportunities that come from working together. Definitely. So if you are interested in artists and, you know, maybe they have representation, maybe they don't, maybe they have younger or new representation or whatever, you know, and, and they're looking at these options, you know, I mean, the options for distribution kind of like overwhelmed. And again, yes. like, that's why I wrote this book. It's like, why should an artist, you know, if they're looking at this, they're like, okay, well, CD Baby is, is maybe a smaller percentage and there, there's some cash like maybe I pay a slightly higher rate with Symphonic. Like, you know, why should an artist work with Symphonic and not, you know, an, an aggregator? Right. So the biggest thing I think is when you are when you are needing a team is when you should start looking for a distributor like Symphonic. When you need people to collaborate with and not just an interface or a support team to answer a, a frequently asked question. When you need people to collaborate with, um, when you need people who know how to uh, to pitch your music, pitching to, to the DSPs and, and being your advocate to retail, quote-unquote retail, meaning you know Spotify and Apple, um, that's when you need a distributor versus an aggregator. Um, and, um, you know, sometimes it's it's cultural to, to some degree. Um, some people are very independent on their own and know what they're doing and maybe don't playlist pitching isn't a big part of what they do. And they have an internal team that can do all the things. Um, sometimes those people stay with, with aggregators and it works out just fine. Um, but if, but if you're a, if you're a single person or a manager and an artist, and you know that that artist is going to succeed more if there's someone pitching it for playlists and helping them get ins at retail and helping to plug in holes in your operation, whether it's suggesting or connecting the dots between you and a publicist or a marketing plan or helping you to put together the right go-to-market strategy, that's when a distributor makes sense. And I think you just, you, you choose symphonic over over other distributors, if you want a smaller team, um, you know, a, a more where you're going to be a larger fish in a smaller pond, um, you know, where Symphonic maybe is uh, on on a big street date, maybe we have you know twenty or thirty releases coming out, where you know at at some of the major owned distributors there might be two thousand releases coming out, and so you know part of analyzing your um, your leverage and your opportunity and potential. Um, you need to find a place where you're going to be a priority. And I think for the artists that we take on, um, they are all priorities and that we're not overloading ourselves to the degree where, you know, there's like a 20th tier priority coming out on a, on a given week, you know, um, basically every priority release coming out through us on any given street date is a top priority that we have the time and the bandwidth to talk about, um, one-on-one -on -one with DSPs when they're asking us what's coming out this week that's important. That is so cool. And I just, I like, I want to say, so people understand, like, 
I don't consider you guys a small fish, but I completely understand what you're saying. It's like, you're not going to get lost in a big system, but I just want to point out, it's not like it's, you know, like I think some kid at NYU started a distribution company. You know what I mean? It's like, you're not that, (laughs) that's for sure. But, but I hear what you're saying. Yeah. We're a small, big distributor to a, to a large degree. And, you know, we're, um, a good portion of us now, the executives that are there have, you know, two decades each of experience at all the other major distributors. And so we, we have a lot of firepower, but we're, you know, we're not owned by a major and, you know, the, you know, the orchard is 500 employees and 70,000 labels, you know, and we have, you know, we have 50 employees and like, you know, hundreds or, or the low thousands of, of labels. So it's, it's just a big difference in scale. And, you know, um, you, everyone in this business and in every business has to analyze what's important to you from a cultural and a communication perspective with your business partner and also analyze um, what your leverage point is. And uh, for a lot of people, it just makes a lot of sense to be with a company who's going to pay attention to them. I agree. And I think it's really cool that um, Symphonic is founded in Tampa. Um, I feel really strong, even though I'm very much a New Yorker at this point, like I feel very strongly that people can build companies and careers from anywhere. And so it's great to see that in practice. And it was something my business partner pointed out because she's based in uh, Orlando and she's the one who first told me about you guys, actually. She's like, Symphonic has been doing a great job for us. Like, and she's like, and they're in Tampa. There's music industry stuff in Florida. Um, so I think that's really cool. And then also you have this global reach though. So again, it's like anyone can start a company from anywhere, in my opinion. Um, and, and again, you mentioned these global offices. So I, I, I love that. Yeah, absolutely. And it's a big part of our, our ethos, you know, which starts from, from Jorge, our founder, who is, is, you know, as low-key as a good person as you'll find in, in this business. And uh, his birthday was yesterday. Happy birthday, Jorge. And uh, yeah, you know, he started in, in uh, Tampa because that's where he was from and uh, is an entrepreneur and um, is, is you know, a, a good person who, you know, just built the business on – you know, the fundamentals of doing good business with good people and making friends with your business partners and putting together the right partnerships. But also it meant that he didn't have the same costs and um, the same view of, you know, some of the competition that exists when you live in New York and L.A. So he built it the way that he wanted to build it. And and some of the things and the ways that he built his company, like those of us grizzled veterans from the rest of the business were like, oh, that's like kind of folksy, you know. But for him, it just was like was logical and intuitive. And it turned Symphonic, I think, into a, a more interesting company that has ideals that are a little bit more based around common sense and, and good business versus like crazy ambition to take over the whole world, which which we really do not have. <laughs> I just, I'm laughing. I mean, I am all about things that make sense. I'm all about common sense as an entrepreneur. And I do think more people should be that way. So I, I like that. It goes a long way. It does. Yes. Um, so I talk quite a bit throughout the book about like, you know, how can art, maybe this sounds lazy. I know you'll understand this and then I'll also ask it in a positive way, but like I talk in the book about how artists can make their partner's lives easier. (laughs) Um, and maybe I, I, I'm just used to that, right? Like as a, Mm -hmm. you know, longtime manager and industry person. So, um, I think the better way to ask it is, you know, what can artists be doing to work with, um, Symphonic, or really any distributor, any distributor in an optimal manner. It's a great question. Well, you know, as the artist, I think that what you need to realize 
if you're dealing with any distributor or really any part of the music business is we the business expects you to be also a record label, whether you realize that or not. Um, it is a time now where artists do direct deals with distribution companies, but um, that didn't used to be the case. And I think the what still exists kind of parenthetically or, or implied in the kind of the, the product chain is that you are in charge of the artist brand and the product and the marketing of your, of your, you know, your music and um, symphonic and distributors are there largely to fulfill the demand for that. Um, and we do offer, you know, some of the marketing services that record labels would have done or that you should be doing to, to build that consumer marketing plan. But we, we want you to understand that. And not only do we want you to, but you sort of need to, um, because no one is going to develop your consumer marketing strategy, um, other than you as the artist and the artist label. Um, so knowing the business is very important. Um, knowing that your product, your music, sorry to use product as a, you know, as a, a word that, you know, some, some view is a removing, you know, or putting too much emphasis on the commerce rather than the art. But um, by the time you have a, uh, an album that is on Spotify or you have a record album sitting in Grammy's record store in Atlanta, you have produced a product that's out there in the world. And it is part of, you know, your product involves your music, but um, you, you know, you're in charge of marketing that product the same way, you know, that um, a company who makes candles is in charge of developing an audience for those candles that's, that are sold in West Elm or whatever. And um, so, so understanding that is a, just a big part of the business that still gets lost, lost in the shuffle and that still frustrates us when we fall in love with an artist who understands their music well, but does not understand that marketing and a rollout strategy, those things are absolutely vital to success. And, you know, the, the one thing that breaks my heart over and over again, and I feel is like 75% of what I tweet about is that artists have this, have this idea all the time now because of how, they see the music industry working that they can make an album and just drop it and put it out into the world tomorrow and that fans are just going to find it and love it and it's going to stream like crazy and that is 100% false. And you know, you need to set up a record properly, you need to have you need to have correct lead time, you need to consider how you're going to market it, how your fans are going to find out about it, how new fans are going to find out about it how it's going to be marketed both from not just to consumers but also to retail. And all those things take weeks or months. And, um, you know, so many times artists come to us and are like, great, we have this amazing album and uh, we want to put it out next Friday. And, uh, and you know, in all of our heads, we're just like, okay, well, that's going to fail, unfortunately. Um, and sometimes uh, people like me who are sometimes are uh, maybe too brutally honest with our clients – um, you know, I'm like, I love this album and it pains me to hear that you are going to absolutely nosedive it into the ground by putting it out next Friday. And, in, you know, without fail, they're always like, no, I know, but I, I just, you know, I just, it's important to get it out right now. Or I, I think it's going to do just fine. Don't worry about it, Nick. And then the next Friday it tanks and then everyone feels bad about it. And, uh, and then we repeat the cycle. What a nightmare because I mean, I've had that conversation more times than I can count. And obviously I deal with a much more limited amount of artists than you do as a distributor. So I bet you have that conversation like at least once a week, if not every day. Every day. 
Absolutely every day. Yeah. So um, what is optimal lead time? Optimal lead time, by the time you're talking to your distributor about a release, is is no less than 12 weeks. But ideally, you want to be in the like four or five month range where you should be telling your distributor that an album is coming and have an idea of when it's going to come out. Yeah. And then, you know, the actual mechanics of distribution and playlist pitching take about 12 weeks. I mean... I hope everybody heard that because, you know, the Cliff's Notes version of, of, to me, of this topic, which I'm constantly um, trying to get into the heads of our team and of our artists or, and to our artists is um, as early as possible. Like, please make Symphonic and our distributors, um, our distributor relationships, like, please make their jobs as easy as possible by getting them everything as early as possible. So, um I, I get the excitement, you know, like, I mean, this won't, we're, we're recording this in December, 2020, this will come out first quarter, um, 2021. Look, I'm making a huge announcement this coming Monday. I am dying to tease it, to leak it, but like, I need to align with our team and, you know, do what's right. So I, I can empathize. I, I get that you're excited, but like, please listen to Nick and please listen to me on this because help us help you. Yeah, and you know, it's uh, that's what the artist needs to do is they they do need to separate the artist part of themselves if they're releasing their own music and they need to be able to think about their music and them as the artist and the third person to some degree and separate what feels to them like very very topical must be must be released by Friday or it's too late part of of creating art that every single artist has including me when you know when I'm creating something creative um, but the rest of the world, including your fans, it is not nearly as timely for them. And to them, they're going to find out about it, you know, a month or six weeks before it comes out. And it's going to feel brand new and really exciting and dropping imminently to them. It just doesn't need to, it doesn't need to be like that for you. You know, like they don't care that, you know, it didn't come out or, or that it came out after, after New Year's instead of before, you know, like to them, it's new music. To you, it might be old, but unfortunately, all of us who make products and distributed them, you know, you have to, yeah, there has to be lead time. Also, I love after New Year's, like, I, I'd be curious to get your thoughts on that. And I'm not like one of those people, like I'll hear from students, like, our professor told us never to release music in the fourth quarter. Like, what does that mean? I'm like, okay, well, I understand why you're being told that. But I really like January release dates because, you know, not that it's all about the industry, but, you know, the only time the industry shuts down is between Christmas and New Year's, you know, and like press shuts, everything shuts down. So I, and and regular, and fans do too, right? Like they're hanging out with yes. family, their schedules are different. So I really like starting the year fresh with a January release date. Um, that's more just a question I have. Like, what do you think about that in general? Yeah, I agree. I mean, I, I, you know, the fourth quarter, it's it's a little different now than it used to be where people were jamming physical products into stores for the fourth quarter and there were, you know, big holiday releases. But now it's mostly the logistics of what happens in December. And the logistics are that people stop working. So the programming of, of the different storefronts kind of stops, really. It's kind of already stopped. Um, you know, we had a street date last week that was like pretty weak as far as we had great records coming up, but really not great placement. Um and, you know, it's just like the business stops the second, like the week before Thanksgiving. It's kind of over for the year. And like, I don't know. I mean, I think our, all of us, like everybody changes their lifestyles during the last six or eight weeks of the year. And, 
you know, I just think it's a, it's a tough time to get people's attention. Unless you're producing a voter turnout festival on January 5th, which will be done and announced by the time this airs. So yes, exactly. I'm going to have my first non break between Christmas and New Year's, but, um, my, the carrot I've dangled for myself is like, maybe I can take like two weeks in January off or something. So do it, Emily. <laughs> you you got to make time for yourself. It, you really, really do. It's very important. Um, so tell us about your uh, physical distribution arm in North er, in North North Carolina. Let's try North America. I think that North sounds America. really cool. Yeah. So we um, we have a distribution deal with a third party distributor called Amped, who are owned by Alliance Entertainment, the largest uh, one stop in the world. And um, Amped is a wholesaler that deals and ships directly to every single retailer, one-stop, and mom-pop store in North America, as well as uh, they export to other distributors and direct retailers throughout the world. And um, for us, it's a, it's a, you know, physical distribution is not our main focus, but we have a great solution um, where um, we can get records into stores. Um, we have a great guy called Kevin Hopper who runs our physical distribution space, who ran the Orchard's physical business before that and was a veteran of TVT and Disc before that. And uh, we have a team. Shout out to Kevin Hopper. I love Kevin Hopper. Great guy. Um, and so we have a team around Kevin, um, many of us who have worked in physical distribution. And so we know how to do those things. And um, uh, we, you know, I would say our solution is just good enough. And I, I say that in my pitch meetings, you know, um, it's just it's just good enough for people who who have records that um, stores are going to want. Um, and, uh, you know, that's, I think the physical business now is kind of like, um, being able to deliver to those that are waiting for it is the primary function. And, um, and that is not a novelty And that, uh, over the last couple of years, there's been a major snafu among the major label owned distributors, um, as they all, um, bought into an intermediary called direct shot, who is a fulfillment company who was unable to do their job and fulfill music that was shipping to um, especially the smaller mom and pop retailers, but also to um, to the major retailers as well, and caused um, a really, really challenging time in the music business where um, mom and pop stores could not actually get the records they wanted and were misshipped, um, tons of things. And it's been something that has plagued all the major label distributors and put lots of um, mom-pop retailers out of business and still continues on amazingly. So Amped um, is, uh, does not have that problem. So the good thing about working with Symphonic um, based on our solution with Amped is that we can actually get your physical product into stores. That's amazing. And you're doing CDs in addition to vinyl, I assume. Yeah, CDs, vinyl, cassettes, um, you know, what, whatever the kids are buying today. It, I mean, I see a lot of CD sales, and I assume you are too. It still blows my. I haven't had a CD player in like a decade, but neither have I. It's still it's still there, absolutely. You know, especially in the markets where it's very car driven, CDs are still big. Um, a lot of people, there are still people who have uh, compact disc players, and they do. Um, you know, for, varies from genre to genre, but is still very much a an important format. Definitely. And tell us about your sync division. Yeah, so we have a sync division that's called Bodega. Um, and Bodega is run by uh, another all-star guy called John Mizrahi and uh, Randall Foster, who runs our Nashville office as well. And uh, Bodega works um, primarily as a, a one-stop, which means that we work with with music whereby whoever is licensing it um, to us uh, owns and controls both the master and the publishing so that we can um, we can offer up a one-stop shop to music supervisors out there. 
And um, we do sync a little bit differently as we, I guess we do all of our services in that um, we we kind of reverse engineer what we see the music supervisors using for different film and TV and advertising projects. And then we go looking and licensing music that we believe there is already demand for. Um, and, and that's different in that other sync houses take on all the music that they, they like or all the music they distribute and just try to push it out there, even if there, if there isn't a home for that stuff. Um, and we do the opposite. Um, you know, we're focused on really only signing things we believe we're going to be successful with. And, and that's good in the sense that we're not wasting anyone's time and we're not doing deals with people that we're kind of speculating maybe we'll be able to do something. Um, we're fairly sure that there's demand for everything that we bring on, which keeps our, our client roster very very limited. And unfortunately, we have to um, say no to a lot of people who want to work with us. But it ensures that we're most efficient um, with our time and with our clients' time and their music. And um, so we, we've been really successful in getting music into great advertisements and some film and TV projects. And uh, yeah, it's a, we added it uh, almost a few years ago. And uh, John came from uh, Carlin Music Publishing and sat on top of some of those important music masters in the world um, for, I think, 15 or 16 years before that. And um, Randall Foster came from Olay Music Publishing. Um, and so both are veterans and have built a really, uh, really good business. I love that. And just one last final question. What does building a sustainable music career mean to you? It means everything to me, both as a person who's made my career as a sustainable music career, um, but also, you know, it's something that I'm really passionate about and is something that is really doable um, if you are focused on, you know, the fundamentals of, of doing that right. And to me, um, as as you should do in anything you do, you should learn about the business. You should learn about what makes a sustainable career in any industry and reverse engineer that and figure out what you like to do in-house and form alliances and relationships with people who do the things that you don't like to do or don't want to do or that do better than you and um, and piece together your your strategy for everything you do and and take care with it and, and business plan it and don't be afraid to get nerdy and really strategic about what you're doing. Um, because if it's if it's good art, it deserves a good strategy to to help it get to the people who are going to love it. Um, so uh, I'm all about independence and all about building independent delivery models for for independent artists making music or, or art or film. And um, there's great options out there um, for distribution, and there's great managers. And really, it's the it's the best time ever, I think, to be releasing music. There's so many great options and so many honest options where you're going to get paid. People are going to treat you with respect and treat your music well. And there aren't as many holes as there used to be for for music to kind of fall off the radar or to, or to not get paid or to get screwed. There just aren't as many pitfalls as there once were. So I think it's a, it's a time where people should feel that they can create uh, fearlessly and to, um, to do whatever they do and to feel like there's a great support system to be a DIY artist or label or manager. I couldn't agree more with every word that you just said. I love it. Um, awesome. Well, this was amazing. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Where can people find you, Symphonic, all that good stuff? Yeah, you can find Symphonic at symphonicdistribution.com. And uh, we're Symphonic Distribution on most social media platforms. I'm on Twitter at the Nick Gordon. Um, and uh, for artists or labels that are interested in uh, distribution or talking about it, you can email me at nick at simdistro, S-Y-M-D-I-S-T-R-O.com. That is so nice of you. I would never give up my 
you all dress like that? Serious inquiries only. <laughs> Love it. Uh, well, thank you so much, Nick. Uh, really, really appreciate it. And that's a wrap for this episode of how to build a sustainable music career and collect all revenue streams. Thank you again, Nick Gordon My pleasure. from Symphonic. Great to talk to you, Emily. Yeah, definitely. And we'll catch you on the next episode.